But before I do that, let me give you the reminder that I like to give often. Don't check out. I know, I get it. God's Word, it's complicated, it's deep, it's an old text. We believe in it, but it's hard sometimes to get, and so you wait for the preacher to explain it. That's awesome, thank you. It's a privilege and a joy to share God's Word. But check in now to God's Word. And I'm going to give you a little teaser, a little hint here. You're going to be given some instructions about mid-course in the reading of God's Word. I'll try to emphasize it very much, what you are supposed to do in response to the Word of God as it unfolds. But I'm just warning you right now, I'm asking you to actually live into and apply God's Word as God's Word is being read. Does that make sense, everyone? All right, I hope everybody, I got your attention now. You can follow along in your own Bible, on your screen, or on our screens up here. We're going to 1 Peter chapter 1, starting at the very beginning, and here's how he starts. We end our letters with the, you know, kind of like, sincerely, George, but these are scrolls. They would unroll them, and so they start with, who is this from, as they start to unroll the scroll? So just imagine God's Word now being opened to the first hears, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to be obedient to Jesus Christ, a beautiful Trinitarian introduction to God's Word here for us, sprinkled with His blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. That was, that was, your, that was your clue there, people. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen! This is how we engage in God's words. We follow it as it is unveiled to us. We praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth and a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice. We greatly rejoice. Amen. We greatly rejoice. Though, here's why we're going to be focusing on this text now, particularly this morning. Though now for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Through, through you, though you have not seen him, sorry, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Today we are wrapping up the Struggle is Real series, and what we've embraced in this series is the fact that the struggle is real. 
that we really have struggles in lives. And these aren't the kind of struggles like, oh no, I have no milk for my cereal this morning, hashtag the struggle is real. Like, oh no, should I order the steak or the lobster? Maybe both. The str- like, like some of our struggles are admittedly ridiculous in the context of our lives and the blessings poured out on us. Let's get some perspective, people. But underneath that, we know we endure struggles. And we've talked about some of those struggles. Of course, we've talked about addiction, we've talked about depression, we've talked about worry and anxiety, and we've talked about fear. And these are real struggles for which there is real hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we could continue the series on indefinitely in many ways, right? I mean, we haven't talked about the struggles of relationships. Relationships are a joy. Relationships are a blessing. But in this fallen world, as fallen people with imperfect motives and ideas and just in our own flaws and the flaws of others, relationships can be extraordinarily difficult. Marriages, a joy, but troubles come. Parenting, a joy, but struggles come. Parents to children, children then to kids, learning how to uh, relate to and care for aging parents is a struggle. We struggle in our relationships, so we could go deeper into that. We, we struggle with our finances, and we struggle making ends meet. We struggle balancing the budget. I'm even told that having too much money is a struggle. If anybody wants to help me take on that struggle, just see me after the service. I will gladly, with the help of Jesus, endure that plight in life. But money's too much, not enough. How we manage all of that is a struggle. Navigating our faith itself can be a struggle. I know that for many of us, what we want when we accept Jesus Christ and we set our life on a course with him, we're like, you know, just, just, just line the path with streetlights all the way down so I can see every turn, every pothole, every bump, every crash. I want to see it all. But the Bible tells us that God's word is a lamp. And how, how far does the lamp shine? Usually just for like the next step. And so this faith is a struggle as we just are taking it one step, one day, one event at a time. And so in a real way, what I want to say now is this, that we want to be a community. Connections Church wants to be a community that does not pretend that the struggles aren't real. That coming here, that saying you're a Christian, that entering into faith and community with us does not mean that now you act like you have it all together. That you put on your proverbial Sunday best, you say God's good all the time, all the time God is good. Remember we talked about that last week? We kind of amended that to God is good even in the midst of suffering and even in the midst of suffering, God is good. We, I just, it's, this is just my heart for us, that we don't have to put on airs or pretense, or this veneer that life is perfect and everything works out all the time for us. Let's just be real. And of course, we've been pushing you over the past couple weeks to say the place to really get real is, is in those groups. So, so, so just get real with people. Be honest about this so that you can pray for these things and then celebrate when breakthroughs, uh, turns, you know, areas of, 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 of release, of deliverance, of liberation, of freedom in Christ happen in real ways in our lives. Well, our theme verse for this, we're going to just mention it one last time, of course, has been Jesus's invitation to enter into this reality. Because he told us, of course, in John 16, 33, we find it, in this world, the struggle is real. In this world, you will have trouble. 
End of story. No. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus, for not giving the diagnosis. In this world you have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And this is one of those statements that reminds us Jesus is a liar, he's a lunatic, or he is Lord. I, I have overcome the world. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have overcome the world. You're crazy. Or Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He is Lord, and it is true. And that, of course, is what we bank on here at Connections, and that is what we bank on as the people of God and the faith that we have. We are banking on the fact that Jesus has overcome the world, and so we take heart in the midst of our struggles that somehow, some way through it, here in this life, or in the glory yet to be revealed that we're going to get into now in today's passage, He has overcome. He has already overcome. And whether that can be applied, that, can, that is applied directly to our lives now through our salvation, we're going to you know, again be unpacking a, a little bit about that now, or it's an inheritance that is being kept for us, and it will work out in Jesus, our overcomer. So last week we started this journey with Peter, but we jumped to chapter 4, and in that the key verse kind of said, do not be surprised. He said, do not be surprised when, when, when troubles come. You know, what Peter is telling us is, you know, be surprised when things work out. <laughs> like, like, when it gets to the end of the day and you have, and you ate, like, woo, like that was, like for them, this is the context, like you made it to the end of the day, you weren't killed for your faith, you had food on your table, maybe, like you were not dragged off and put in jail, that's the surprise, <laughs> woo-hoo, you made it, God is with you. This is his grace to you. Don't be surprised when the troubles come. Like, be surprised when things work out in, in faith. And this is what the takeaway was. We kind of went to the God's table, Christ's table, and we communed there and shared in his suffering. And, and, and what that does is, and what we're going to go into today, I'm going to say this word a couple times, is that begins this process for, for us as people of faith. It recalibrates our lives. We want to recalibrate our lives to the suffering of Jesus Christ. That just as Jesus suffered in this world, sometimes we will suffer, and we even then rejoice when we share in these sufferings of Jesus Christ. Every time we come to that table, it's in a sense recalibrating our lives to the sacrifice of Jesus. Oh yes, Jesus gave his body for me. Oh yes, Jesus' blood was poured out for me. And then we take and we eat and we drink and we really begin this recalibration. And at the end of that table as you come away from that, and, and sometimes we do these things and we just sort of embrace the mystery and the spiritual significance of it without a lot of explanation. But we, what we came out of that, if it wasn't abundantly clear, let me just say it as we then move forward. We don't always know why we suffer this side of heaven, but we know he is always with us in our suffering. That's what the table is always reminding. We don't always know why. Praise God if you learn the why, this side of heaven. We will know why. We will know why in time to come. But we know this. He is always with us. He is always with us to the very end of the age, especially in the midst of our suffering. And so we want to jump back into this, uh, this, this idea now of, of recalibrating our lives to suffering for the sake 
of Jesus Christ. There's a study that was done, and you could listen to this in a fascinating podcast called The Happiness Lab. And, and it's, I think this is their inaugural podcast, um, and it's studying how people experience joy and happiness and fulfillment and all that. But their very inaugural one explored this idea, uh, this reality, actually, that silver medal winners from the Olympics suffer. Okay, so he, he, here's what happens. These people that win silver medals in the Olympics, they have this perspective. They are calibrated, so to speak, then, for the win. And whenever they get the silver medal, they simply see it through this lens. Not, I won the silver medal, but I lost the gold. Next to that, interesting enough, is the bronze medal winners. The bronze medal winners, though, they have this different perspective where they recognize, oh my goodness, I made the podium. I made it by, you know, like by a split second, by one pound, you know, by one point on the board. I made it. And that makes all of the difference. It's a fascinating study that silver, people who have won the silver medal have truly, they're actually, they tell stories. They're sad stories. They spend the rest of their lives beating themselves up, saying, I lost, I lost, I lost. And of course, the people around them are like, what are you talking about? You won, you're amazing. And they can't get past it. And they truly end up like this life of like suffering and misery, like beating themselves up because they lost. And the bronze medal winners spend the rest of their lives, they're like, I made it, I made it, I could have, I, like, like, I just got there. That is why uh, early on when we are launching Connections, I preached the I'm third principle. This is how we live. I'm third. I'm third is the way to live. God first, other second, I'm third. If we recalibrate ourselves to being third, <laughs> it changes everything. And so if we recalibrate our lives to I'm third, God first, others second, I'm third. If we recalibrate our lives then to the sense of suffering as a part of this journey, then every time we make it to the end of the day, we're, we're going to rejoice then because God has been with us. And then we go to bed trusting he's going to be with us and bring us into the dawn of a new... So, so let's, let's jump a little bit more into our text. He begins now, of course, Peter. The very first word that we read here in this letter, as it's unveiled to us, is, of course, Peter. And, of course, that we should just pause long enough to recognize, then, who is writing this. Where is this coming from? What is the source material? The source is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's coming through Peter. And Peter is... Peter should be one of our favorites for, for all of us. Peter is the first to call Jesus the Christ, and yet Peter is the first to deny that Jesus is the Christ. Peter is the first and only to get out of the boat and walk on water. He's the first and the only to start to sink in fear. And we talked a little bit about this. Peter is the one who has counted himself out after his denial of Jesus Christ. And yet Jesus comes and makes a special visit to him when he's gone back to his boat. He's left that life. He's followed Jesus. He's fallen back into that life. He's back on the boat. And Jesus calls him, reinstates him, reinstates him commissions him back to the ministry of being the rock, the leader amongst the disciples, the one who will be the foundation then for the church that is going to go out to the world. So, so he recalibrates him and says, Peter, I'm calling you. Feed my sheep and all this stuff. And then remember, he reveals to him, and you will suffer for my name's sake. The time will come when you're not led by your own, you're led by another. And, and Jesus then reveals to him, 
you're going to suffer. This reminds me that, of course, again, in our launch stage a year ago when we went through the book of Acts, what did God even say to Paul? Actually, the guy from Saul of Tarsus who's going to become Paul, but he revealed, I will reveal how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Peter is writing this letter now, some 30 years after his commissioning to go and launch the church. And in this 30 years, he has seen miracles unfold. He has seen dead people raised. He has seen sick people become wealthy. He has seen signs of the evidence that Jesus' mission is continuing to move forward. And he has seen the church grow, and yet he has also seen and this is now the context then for our writing and for why we're talking about this today. He has also seen literally his friends chased down, cut down, crucified. Friends thrown into jail, beaten and beheaded and boiled alive. And, and this is not an exaggeration, of course, of terms. This is what is happening to the disciples to the Christians, the people going forth and following Jesus Christ. So when he writes to them about suffering, this isn't some abstract dissertation on the nature of human suffering and the philosophical problem of pain in our world. He's writing to people that he knows and are dying because he led them to Jesus. And now they're dying for Jesus. The pastoral compassion and impulse of this letter cannot be overstated when he begins to talk to them about the suffering that they are going to endure. And he begins, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect. Now, I cannot allow this to become a sermon on the doctrine of election, as much as there's a part of me that wants to do that. So it will suffice to say that this doctrine that he starts with is therefore proposed to us, we are reminded of it, so that we may have a comfort that God has chosen us. That is what an election is. What do you do in an election? You choose someone. You cast your vote for them. I want that girl. I want that guy. God is telling us, I want that child. I want that man. I want that woman. I want you. I'm casting my vote for you. How do you know you are chosen? Do you want to choose God? Is there the impulse in you that you want to know God as Father? Do you believe that Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead and your hope is that he is coming again and bringing the kingdom with him? Do you want the Holy Spirit? Do you want to be spiritually alive and in connection with the Holy Spirit? Do you desire that? That is the evidence of God choosing you, the word tells us. And so Paul reminds his readers because he wants them to be comforted. God has chosen you. If you have any impulse or desire to go towards God, that means God has already come towards you. In Jesus Christ, and by the power of His Spirit, so take joy, take peace, be comforted that God has chosen you. This is the foundation. But before we move now deeper, this is the foundation for all rejoicing and suffering, to know, to know no matter what comes in our lives, in this world, in our families, with work, with our health, to know God has chosen you called you, loves you, gave his son for you so that you may have life in the son now and forever. Amen, friends? Just want to get an amen on that one because this is the foundation to know that God calls and chooses us and knows us by name. 
So, to God's elect, chosen. And then he kind of takes this turn, this interesting thing. Exiles, scattered. And this is, this is, this is very interesting. So, God has chosen these people, and yet now these people have become scattered. So, what's going on in the plan of God? Some of you would be familiar with the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is a great story of faith. I commend it to you. It's like almost the whole second half of Genesis. It's a big chunk there at the beginning of the Bible. And we're introduced to this guy named Joseph. And, and Joseph is, uh, has a bunch of brothers, and he's kind of uniquely called by God. He's got this unique kind of, a, you, know, uh, you know, mark on him here. And um, he doesn't play it well at the beginning. I won't go into a whole Joseph story, but he doesn't play it well in the beginning. And he kind of gets on his brother's bad side. And Joseph's suffering, his pain, his struggle begins when his brothers throw him into a cistern. Don't worry, it's not filled with water. Small grace of God there. He doesn't die in the cistern. No, they take compassion on him and they just sell him into slavery. And the suffering continues. Meanwhile, they tell their dad that their brother died, so they've gone deeper down this path of sin. But meanwhile, Joseph enters into this life of deep, deep, deep suffering. He's sold as a slave and works in Potiphar's house, but he honors God and he honors his master, and then his master's wife kind of hits on him, but he refuses her advances, and it's like, great, the turning point, he's honored God. No, that gets him thrown deeper into a prison, and he suffers away a prison, and, and in the midst of this, again, read it as a narrative story, not knowing the end, but in this, you're like, what is going on, God? remarkably then he gives joseph this gift of knowing dreams and then pharaoh has this dream and joseph interprets the dream correctly that there's going to be seven years of of incredible blessing and then seven years of unbelievable drought and pharaoh takes a gamble he takes a bet on joseph and he puts him like second in command in charge of everything he's doing the long play here you got to commend pharaoh and it works out just as Joseph said it would, seven years, the blessing comes, he's in charge, he gathers everything, and then the time comes, then the time comes. His brothers, suffering in another land because of the famine, about to die, come. They have no idea it's Joseph. Joseph reveals himself to them. They're like, what's going to happen? Is he going to throw us into jail? Is he going to kill us on the spot? All these things unfold. And in the end, then, Joseph has these most remarkable words. He says this, you intended to harm me, but God, here it is, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. That, that's just it. That, that is the trajectory of the Bible in so many ways. Suffering, pain, what can be intended for hardship, God will be using for the saving of many lives. When we make these actions, our actions, here's a little interesting theological sort of paradigm for you to jot down and, and, and make decision actions on this. Decisions can be good, 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 bad, 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 or bad, good. So we can attempt to make decisions that are good, good, but only God is good, good. Only God can have good intentions and have entirely good motivations. Only God is pure, only God is holy, only God is glorious and deserving of our praise. Only God is good, Good. At best, we, in this stage, in this time, 
we are good bad. We can have good actions. We can do good works. We can love our neighbor and bless and love lives, but all of our goodness is marred a bit by the badness of sin. You know, we might do something great, but we want a little pat on the back, you know? We might do something awesome for another person, but it puffs up our ego a little bit. We might do something awesome for a neighbor, but we are hoping on the backside to get something for it. So all of our best actions still are a little tainted with sin. Of course, then we can do things that are bad, bad, though. And many people do. They do bad things for bad reasons. <laughs> they conspire for wickedness and they pull off wickedness. The Bible talks a lot about those. And we know that the devil and his minions only conspire for bad, bad. Bad intentions, bad actions, and we would also say bad results. But what we're learning then in Joseph and through Peter and through the experience of our lives is God can do bad good. God can take bad things and turn them to good and glorious things. God can take what Joseph's brothers intended for evil and he can turn it to good. And what Peter then is saying to them is saying, what people intended for evil, what the devil intended to scatter the church, what the religious leaders intended to destroy the people who call Jesus Christ Savior and Lord, what the world conspired to do for evil in the scattering of us, look at what has happened now. The church has gone global. And we're fulfilling the Great Commission. God has made this amazing turn to go bad, good. To take the scattering of the people of God, to take the attempted destruction of the church, and to actually use that to send the church out into all of the world to fulfill the Great Commission. Amen, friends? All right, you're with me. This is the incredible work of our God who can take bad actions and turn them to glorious things that can take suffering and pain and begin to use them for his glory. And so God calls his people and they to be scattered. Now, 30 years ago, 30 years ago this year, a book came out uh, and it had a profound influence on me, a profound influence on, on many. Um, I would still commend it to you as a modern classic. Uh, Will Willimon and Stanley Hauerwas wrote their book titled Resident Alien. And in that, they simply set out this motif that the proper way to understand ourselves and our place in the world is that we too are a scattered people, an exiled people. We become, as the people of God, resident aliens in this world. Now, this came true to me in a real way whenever we went to Canada to plant a church back in the mid-2000s. Whenever we did that, part of the impulse for that and leading for that was that Robin has a lot of family still in Canada where they originally immigrated from and many still live in. So Robin grew up in Victoria, uh, and then because she delivered our babies, she did do that, go Robin, they were born into Canadian citizenship, but I was the outsider. I was the Yankee. And so I accepted this call and it went up and I had to go through all of this paperwork and, you know, prove myself and get an FBI background check and all, all that stuff. But in the end, the end result of that was amazingly that I got a card that said I was a resident alien. It didn't say alien, but it said I could reside. It was called a permanent resident card, but the reality is it, it said I was a U.S. citizen, but I could reside there in Canada and do God's work. I became a resident alien. And that's really simply carried and directed that awareness of my being a resident alien 
was always before me. One, because it was always before me. It was my standing in the nation. <clears throat> but also because living there was kind of like a resident alien experience. It was kind of like, it's like home, but it's not. Like, I buy milk, but it's in a bag, not a jug. Anybody know that? I mean, they sell their milk in, in bags. Like, I get coffee, but it's this place called Tim Hortons. Anybody hear Tim Hortons? couple of people, like, they're everywhere. They're all over. You never see them here. Like, there's, like, one in every living room in Canada. They're insane. I mean, they're all over. Like, I could still drive my car, but I had to learn to drive it on the left side of the road. Some of you are like, is that true, George? I'll let you, I'll let you do your research. And, no, I'm joking. I didn't have to. No, no. So, but the point is that it was, I resided there, but it was different, right? Everything was a little bit different. It was, like, all about hockey, not all about football. It, it, it just Everything was just the same but different. I was ever being reminded that I was a resident alien. But this can powerfully change our perspective and then our expectations for life in this world. When we embrace this idea to say, I am now until Christ's return, or my death and my coming alive again in him in glory. I am a resident alien. My citizenship is secure in Jesus, who resides at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. My papers belong to him. I am a citizen of heaven. But I will reside now on earth until he calls or comes again. We are the resident aliens of the kingdom of God scattered throughout the world for the fulfilling of the commission of God to share the good news that there is forgiveness and life forever in Jesus Christ. That is who we are and how we make sense of our suffering. So the resident alien, <clears throat> let me begin to wrap this up here because we got a big day we got to get into right connectors we got a big day here we as the resident aliens must carry with us two songs and i'm going to go old school for you on this so old school folks you're going to love this one new school folks learn these ones we need to carry with us two songs we need to wake up with a song on our lips given to us by the old presbyterian minister maltby babcock this is my father's world we wake up with the gift of a new day, and we should declare to God, this is my Father's world, and I had to get the lyrics because it's been a long time for me. This is my Father's world, and to my listening ears, all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. We wake up as a resident alien, and we say, I'm alive today for a reason. And as Maltby walked along the Niagara escarpment and declared the glories of God, we go out in our day and we declare the glories of God we say father it is your world and I will do your will wherever you lead me wherever you scatter me wherever you exile me wherever I am called to be it is your father's world it is my father's world we are reminded of the people of God when they were scattered to the land of Babylon they cried out what is happening God what is happening and he says I have sent you here for a purpose so be a blessing for the very welfare of the people around you. I have called you here for a reason. We embrace that God has called us here and now for a reason. You are where you're at to be the Father's ambassador, the King's representative, to do His will in the world. 
You have your job for a reason. You are in your neighborhood for a reason. You have the connections in the community and family and friends and neighbors for a reason. God has placed you there for a reason. And embrace that reason and go into your Father's world, declaring His praise and doing His work. And at the end of the day, friends, that's your first thing, at the end of the day, if your days are anything like mine, you will feel punched in the gut, broken, bleeding, left reeling, having suffered through the work of the day. I mean, I lead this church. I suffer daily. I mean, leading you, no, no I mean, I, you know, but you get it. You get it. You suffer daily. So at the end of the day, what do we sing then? The old spiritual. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. For beyond me lays, beyond the skies blue, a promise kept in eternity. This is not my home. This world is not my home. I am just passing through. And so we take comfort in knowing as resident aliens then that our citizenship is secure for us already in heaven. And when we die, we are there in paradise with Jesus in the moment, or if he comes again, he brings the kingdom with us, and finally, all is reconciled in the consummation of the kingdom. But do you get it, friends? Tell me you get it. We as Christians, the resident aliens, the exiles scattered for the filling of the Great Commission, we wake up declaring this is our Father's world, but we can go to bed on the promise that this world is not my home. We're just passing through. Can you live in that tension, friends? Can you live in that tension? Because that is how we live and make sense of the suffering and the pain that will be glorified in His return. I will invite the team to come forward. They're going to lead us into a time of worship. As they do, I'm going to give you some bonus material. I went into kind of like preacher mode last night, and I was thinking about this and what I wanted to end you with. And as only a preacher can alliterate, I want to tell you, friends, in a good alliteration. Hope you get out your pen or I'll post this online. But this is what suffering can do in our lives. This is what pain can do in our lives. We're always learning that pain will inspect you. Pain will direct you. Pain will protect you. Pain will correct you. And finally, your pain will perfect you. Your pain is going to inspect you. Your pain is going to inspect your life. Whenever you are suffering agony and pain and hardship, it will provide the opportunity for introspection on where your ultimate hopes lie. Your pain will inspect you. Your pain will be able to direct you. Just like God's people were scattered for the very fulfillment of the Great Commission, trust that even through the suffering of your life, God is directing your paths and will get you to places that maybe you wouldn't have ever gone on your own. Actually, that's the rub. You would have never gone on your own to some of the places that God wants to get you to. So he will use pain and suffering and hardship and trial to direct you to exactly where you need to be. He will inspect you. He will direct you. He will then protect you. Sometimes we know that God's suffering and pain actually provides ultimate protection in our lives. Joseph was actually protected from his brothers for, for the fulfillment of the promise of the saving of many lives. He will correct you. Sometimes we need to humbly take suffering and pain for the correction of our sin and our brokenness and our errors. But finally, friends, the pain will be perfected whenever we commune forever with Jesus. Not just every once in a while the table of his suffering, but forever at the banquet laid out for all the saints as we feast in the perfection of the glories of the kingdom ever and always. Amen, friends? Amen. Allow God's pain to inspect you, 
to direct you, to correct you, friends, to, what was my other word, to protect you. <laughs> Even I have to remember sometimes. And finally, to perfect us. Let me pray for us, and then let's worship. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for calling me. And what I want to pray in faith now is calling every child of yours here by name for this time, for a reason, choosing us in Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Thank you for choosing us and calling us. And now as your chosen people, we embrace our scattering. We embrace our status now as resident aliens. Send us however you need to get us there, by whatever means you need to use to get us there, scatter us and send us where we need to go so that we can fulfill your mission of sharing the good news of the life that we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, the life that is offered to all who call on his name and believe in his resurrection and hope for his return. So now, scatter us and equip us and use us for the fulfillment of this promise. For anyone here this morning now that doesn't have the security of it, I pray, as Peter ended his introduction, his hope, his hope that he held on to, that he clung to, even as he was looking down now, the very end of his life, and his martyrdom, the sacrifice of his life for you, Jesus Christ, he talked about this great hope that he had, the salvation of his soul the salvation of our souls. Lord, we trust in you for our salvation, for our forgiveness, for our forever with you, Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. And for any man or woman or child this morning who doesn't have that salvation, who doesn't have that security, who doesn't have that peace in the midst of the suffering world, I pray that maybe right now is the turning point. In the lifting of this prayer, they are lifting their lives. In the singing of these songs, they are declaring that their life will be built upon you. We pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's worship.